Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm an associate professor at California State University, Northridge, and a speech-language pathologist at UCLA Medical Center. In this episode of the ANCDS podcast, I talk with Romani Valetti. I asked Romani to come on the podcast because she's ANCDS board certified. Currently, I'm chair of the certification board, and I get a fair number of questions from speech pathologists interested in board certification, and some of those questions relate to their concerns that they can get through the process successfully. I thought it might be helpful to talk to somebody who's been through that process to talk about board certification. Romani is an assistant teaching professor and speech-language pathologist at the Gebbe Clinic at Syracuse University. She's also a member of the ANCBS Certification Board. To start our conversation, I asked Romani how she got her start as a speech-language pathologist. So I did my undergrad degree in India way back. I graduated in 1985 and uh, we get a dual degree like speech and hearing. We don't major in one or the other. We were at that time, we were given both speech and hearing degree. So we could, we followed the British system and we could go out and practice as both audiologists and speech therapists. So I have that experience a little bit under my belt. And so I did work in India for a while. And then um, I decided to move to Malaysia for about 14 months. I worked in Malaysia as a speech therapist there. We're called speech therapists there. And we followed the WHO model, World Health Organization model there. And I did a lot of community-based rehabilitation where we would travel with physical therapists, psychologists, occupational therapists, all of us as a group, social workers, into the communities. And we educated the grassroots level workers and we also provided therapy in people's homes, almost like home health care, but more in the community, as well as educating and uh, training people in the community. We worked a lot with interpreters um, uh, and, you know, in Malaysia, people spoke uh, a language that I could speak, one of the Indian languages there. Indians, they're the native uh, people there, and then they were they were Chinese. So there were three languages spoken by people there. So we had interpreters for the languages I didn't speak, and uh, that was a bit of a challenge there. Um, I I was assigned a local Chinese uh, girl who worked with me for interpreting uh, services for kids who had speech and language problems. So I worked with both kids and adults there. The major population there was people with cerebral palsy so I worked with feeding and swallowing a little bit there although I didn't have uh, a lot of training at the undergraduate level at that point I learned on the job a little bit and that's when I decided I want to learn more about dysphagia I wanted to get an advanced degree and I wanted to do my master's in the U.S. Um, After that I got married and I also worked a little bit before I came to the U.S. I also worked a little bit in Botswana my husband and I, we moved to Botswana, Africa, and we did the same community-based rehab. What I did in Malaysia helped me get a job in Botswana. So the same thing, we did a lot of traveling with people, uh, with different uh, therapists and social workers together, and uh, we provided services in the community. And then that's when I decided to apply to the U.S. to get an advanced degree. And Syracuse University was the place that I applied to, one of the universities I applied to, and Syracuse University chose me, so I've been having a long relationship with the university since then. So I came here way back in 2001. So yeah, I graduated 2003, and then I I got an offer here. I wanted to work in the medical field with adults. I knew that, you know, even after working for so long outside of here, I wanted to do that. So I got a job in Cooperstown in a hospital. Uh, It was through my externships. Actually, the externships work out really well. I tell the students all the time, my externship supervisor at VA here, the VA hospital, is originally from Cooperstown, and she had an offer there, which she was considering, but then she decided she won't take it, and then she told me about it and said, you need to go interview there, trust me, it's a beautiful place, you'll love it there, and true enough, I did, and I was offered the job, I worked in an acute care hospital there for about two and a half years, And then uh, the folks here know me very well. They called me and said, we have a position here. You want to come back? And I did. 
um, and I've been here since from 2005, December onwards. So it's going to be like 13 years since I've been here. And I love it. I thought maybe I would like the change from clinical work to, you know, teaching, which I wasn't so passionate about at that point. But now I love it. I love to see the students learn and get that, you know, that aha moment they get mm -hmm. when they're working with clients. And also in the class, when they make that connection between classroom and clinic, that's just so nice to see. Are you still seeing clients? Um, we do. They do encourage us here during the breaks, like during the semester breaks when the students are not here. We do have the clinic running and we do see some clients once in a while. Yes, we do. And evaluations and therapy continuation. You know, the clients are just making progress and they're ready to be discharged, but the students are done. They need the break. They go away. We continue with them and right. finish up sometimes. Or there's a referral that comes through. They can't wait. And... Uh, you know, say they need to be seen urgently, like voice clients after surgery or client with the face who just had a stroke looking for services and nobody's able to take them in. And we, you know, I said, like, I'll do the evaluation and the students come back, they continue with the therapy. It's kind of hard, the transition sometimes, but most clients understand that, you know, sure. when they choose yeah. us. Yeah. yeah, particularly in the university clinic, they're used to yes. having <clears throat> their therapist being switched on them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, they are so used to it and they love it. You know, mm -hmm. my clients, they say that too. You know, yeah. When we were talking offline, you mentioned that, I think you mentioned, this was a couple days ago when we chatted, that you also work in acute care? Students yeah, so the hospital I was in, yeah. yeah, right now, yes. That hospital I worked in after I graduated was an acute care hospital. And I work in an acute care hospital too here, uh, per deem, twice a month on Saturdays, two Saturdays a month minimum. I work um, in an acute care hospital, local hospital, where we have all those settings, like acute care, rehab, acute rehab, and transitional care unit, like a SNF, a short-stay SNF. So all three setup is in the same place. So I go in and I see, uh, you know, inpatient rehab patients, four or five assigned to me that day. And I switch gears and then go up to see transitional care unit patients and mm -hmm. then uh, end up with acute care uh, floors, you know. So we do all three levels of care. Yeah, you know, I'm, I've done per diem for a long mm -hmm. time. I think I started doing per diem work in 1995 and it was funny mm -hmm. a, a friend of mine was the manager of the clinic at ucla and he called me up and he asked me if i could come in and help them out for three months because i think they had a therapist on maternity leave or something like that just help out on mm -hmm. saturdays i said sure mm -hmm. you know I get the chance to make a little extra money Three, right. three months turned into 11 years. Um, <laughs> and then and then I moved out back to Pittsburgh and uh, was out there for four years. And mm -hmm. now I'm back at UCLA doing per diem work again, although it's different for me now mm -hmm. because I'm seeing outpatients and they're just mm -hmm. my clients. They're coming in once a week, whereas... Before I was doing kind of what it sounds like you're doing, which is, you know, just picking people up in acute rehab mm -hmm. on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So they get one more session per week. Right. Doing mm -hmm. probably a lot of bedside swallow evaluations. Um, a lot of aphasia, right hemisphere. We get everybody really? there in the rehab unit. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think you mentioned right hemisphere damage patients in one of the previous podcasts. It was Dr. Peggy Blake. and Oh, Peggy's actually my teacher. Oh, really? So she was oh, here wow. at Syracuse University when I was a student. Oh, so, cool. yeah. So she did the motor speech disorders course from me. Mm. And then I took over. And, mm. and so she's the one who introduced me to ANCDS, I should say. I mean, I got in touch with her when I got interested because she was the chair at that point. And I said, like, I'd like to do this. And I see that Peggy, you are uh, the chair, what do I do? And she put me in touch with Kathleen Yaus, who was the uh, certification chair at that yeah. time. 
so and so Peggy's kind of like she came here to do our SEU event uh, a year ago for us oh, and cool. I had my students go she yeah. is awesome she is, she is awesome she is. She yeah, is yeah. the right hemisphere person. Person, yep. yeah. Uh, but yeah. one of the main themes of our conversation was how persons with right hemisphere damage aren't being referred for treatment. Mm -hmm. I think more specifically, they're not being referred for outpatient treatment because like you, my mm -hmm. experience in acute rehab was that we were seeing almost as many right hemisphere damaged mm -hmm. clients as left hemisphere damaged clients. Right. Yeah. And and you wonder where they go after they go from rehab. Are they, yeah. you know, being picked up and out because they still continue to need some of them are severe enough. They, they would continue to need those services. You're right about that. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you, maybe it might seem like kind of a strange question, but I think this is specific to working to per diem. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was odd for me about doing that job was picking up another therapist's treatment plan, right? <laughs> yeah. And kind of yes. like not having any say, really, uh, in terms of what's going to be done with this client, you know, just kind of doing what somebody else had already planned out. Um, right. Or the person was admitted like late Friday. And so on Saturday, I'm the one to do the avow. Do the and avow. Feeling, feeling yeah. kind of weird because I know that I'm going to do an avow and write some goals. Mm -hmm. for somebody else um, right do you do you also does that make you also feel a little un, un, often. uneasy often yep yeah, i hear yeah. what you're saying the other thing i found difficult yeah. about per diem at, at least particularly in the beginning is that you're coming in and you're learning a, maybe a whole new electronic medical <laughs> record system mm -hmm. and and other things about that institution that are different. And you're there usually by yourself. So you mm -hmm. have no one, except maybe a, a kind nurse who will help you navigate <laughs> this new electronic medical mm -hmm. record system, but you don't have another SLP who's really gonna sit down and school you. And then you're only there once a week so the chance that you kind of forget um yeah or it just takes a lot it takes longer, longer yeah to get longer than the regular therapist yes yeah, yeah that is yeah. so right they did give us a lot of training um to give them credit in the mm -hmm. local hospital and we were able to um before we started being on our own shadow and be with therapists uh, see them write the notes and they also had us write with them with us a couple of times uh, not many times, but you're right. In the beginning, I've, I've been doing this for the past, I think this is my second year. The first year was hard, like, you know, writing those notes mm. and the templates and filling that out. It took me longer. And I would always argue with the supervisors about, you know, you can't have the same productivity standards for per diemers and also the people who are there, mm -hmm. you know, regularly. And they did say they have a different standard, but it's very minimal, the difference, you know. And I like it takes you longer to get back into it when you're only coming twice a month or even yeah. once a week, like you said, yeah. it does. Yeah. That's true. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was about board certification because you're board mm -hmm. certified. But before we get into that, I can't help but be curious about a couple things in the background that you shared with us. You mentioned mm -hmm. that your training in India was not just in speech pathology, but audiology. Did you ever practice audiology? Um, yes, in India. But when I went to Malaysia and Botswana, I worked mainly as a speech therapist. They had their own audiologists at that point uh, who trained elsewhere. They didn't have a school at that point in both countries. Now they do in Malaysia, but 
I don't think there's a school yet in Botswana. So I worked there only as speech therapist, but in my country where I was working, I worked there from, I graduated in 1985, went to Malaysia in 92 for about seven years. Yeah, I worked as both uh, hearing and speech. And that's what, when the school started in India, they wanted to get to the publisher. We are a big publisher, you know, now we've crossed a billion, we meaning in it back in India. So, um, when, when, you know, you have so many people to be able to cater to everybody, they thought when they first started the program, it would be easier to train in the schools. Uh, most of the students or the graduates as both speech and hearing and mm. to serve as both speech therapists and audiologists. So I remember as a clinician in India, I used to provide, you know, do hearing tests, hearing evaluations, provide hearing aids, dispense hearing aids, as well as do speech therapy, all of it. So it was quite busy and we could do that because the documentation, I mean, probably things have changed there now. I haven't been there uh, looking at the, whenever I go, it's only for a holiday. I haven't worked. Uh, I only do the consultation because I told you this before, I think I do a consultation with the school in India. Mm -hmm. uh, I provide consultation for their clients. They have a graduate school there and uh, I provide consultations with the speech therapist there to provide therapy to people with aphasia, dysarthria and cognitive linguistic disorders. So that through them I come to know, but they still say the documentation is not as much as we have here. So you can get to see a lot more patients, but you write minimal documentation. You know, you don't have much. So there's, I'm so that's, <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. So we could see a lot more clients because of that, you know. So um, so I do have that experience, but, but that was a long time ago. I see clients, yeah. some clients for free. And mm -hmm. that's one of the benefits of being able to see clients for free is, you know. The documentation is minimal. The documentation <laughs> is whatever I want it to be. Uh, basically, yeah. yeah. I'm curious. You about don't have to do the fun G codes. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Or remember <laughs> to do my progress reports and my plan the of care. Yes, like, yes, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's not get on that. That that's depressing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, Botswana. You know, it sounds like mm -hmm. when you were in Malaysia, anyways, that maybe you were treating people who were. Uh, culturally maybe similar to you. Uh, was Botswana mm -hmm. a big cultural shift? In Botswana, most people, even in the rural areas, did speak English. Really? Some basic English, at least. Was there an, an African language that yeah, they 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 spoke uh, what was called uh, Botswana language. You know, oh, okay. uh, so that was a yeah. So that was a language this 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 spoke, and I spoke a little bit of it, like greetings and basic stuff, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but the the community workers were all speaking English, you know, so we could give our training to them in English. Um, and uh, in Malaysia, it was the same too. The community based workers spoke English, but the patients themselves, not many of them did. So we had to speak in the we had to have interpreters. And in Botswana, we, we, we needed interpreters, but not as often. Huh. <laughs> so we tried to come up with some standardized, because there were no standardized tests in that language, you know? So tr mm. we tried to, like a group of us got together and we tried to do some of that. So that was interesting to do. Well, let's move on to talk mm. about uh, board certification. So uh, just so our audience knows right now, uh, you're on the board certification committee and you mm -hmm. joined this year. So starting in January, right. so still pretty mm -hmm. new to the certification board. And you've been board certified for how long? Uh, four years now, 2014 is mm -hmm. when I got that mm -hmm. the certification. What made you decide to become board certified? 
So I always looked at this and, you know, when I said I, I teach a medical speech language pathology course, like I told you, the one credit course. And when I began teaching it, I was looking into part of what we do is teach students about, you know, how can you continue learning? What are the things that you can do? And this was one of it. And I would go to the NCDS website also for evidence-based practice resources, obviously, when I started teaching uh, to show the students how they can access that material. So I always looked at the certification board and I would talk to the students about it and I would think about doing it but I always like you know felt like I looked at the requirements there and that would get it was daunting in the beginning <laughs> like would I be able to come in to the time that this would take it seemed like it would take so much time and I don't have that time how would I do it yeah. you know and at first when I came back here I want to do a PhD but that was not possible for many reasons so I said okay the what can I do and I was already working with this population for a long time so I you know, this seemed like a big better fit for me than all the board certification that we have through ASHA like the smallowing one I looked at fluency um, that was something that I was doing a while ago like working with adults with fluency problems stuttering um, and then there's the child one, language one through ASHA, but the one that I was interested in was, I looked at all three ANCDS, uh, the board certification ASHA one for swallowing and then the one for fluency. But out of all three, I felt this was a better fit because uh, this was the population I was working on a lot with and I found that connection too and I really loved this more than anything else. Yeah. So the next logical step I thought would be to do this but it took me a while to get there because it was it did look daunting in the beginning. However, when I when I decided I wanted to do it, I said to myself, I should start. Once I start, I know I would finish it. You know, we all do that, right? We begin something and we want to finish it. We want to see through it. So I said, let's start it. And once I started, it didn't seem that daunting. You know, you, the our, our whole process that we laid out on the website is very clear cut. When you look at what are the requirements, mm -hmm. it's when you start to look at it step by step. You do your summary, you do your background information, then you look for evidence, you do the assessment, you have the data. It's all very clearly laid out. Yeah. So once you start writing, it doesn't seem that daunting anymore. You know? What was what was in I guess intimidating about it to you in the beginning? Oh, the time commitment. Time that more than anything else, it was the time commitment that was like, you know, yeah. it seems like this is a lot of work. Would I be able to give that time that's needed to a, do a good job and, you know, submit it? And I was uh, with the old system. Like They mm -hmm. actually gave me an option because when I applied, the board was going through the uh, changes, right? Mm -hmm. The old system was exam plus one case study. So when mm -hmm. I applied, it was exam plus one case study. But Me then too. the changes were coming, so they put my application on hold, and they, they said, we're working on changes. And once the process was set, they said, to be fair to you, we're giving you both options. Do you want to do the old system or the new one with the two case summaries? And I said, no, I want to do the old one, because the exam is easier. I've been teaching motor speech disorders for a while with the neuroanatomy and everything. And I yeah. said, I want to just do the exam, and I want to do the case summary. Yeah. I think for me, when I looked at at the board certification process, the, and I think I've been board certified maybe a little bit longer than you. Mm -hmm. I, I know I have been. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was intimidating to me was that statement that the case study has to be publication worthy. And yes, at the time, right. yes, I had yeah. never written anything mm -hmm. for publication. I was just a therapist, you know, writing my clinical reports mm -hmm. um, so that i think was one of the main intimidators for me along with the time commitment certainly right you're right yeah, yeah. but yes. you just kind yeah. of have to bite the bullet and do it. yes you have to do it <laughs> you're right. yeah once you start doing it you know yeah. like you know you have this so fortunately, if you're in the university clinic like I was, we do write, you know, the documentation we have the students do, right. like for the evaluation, for the therapy. It's pretty, you know, good. Like, you know, we try to make sure it's all documented well. So we used that as a starting point and then started filling in, 
you know, the guidelines we have take one at a time. Like, you know, you start with, you don't look at the whole picture, just focus on one piece at a time, like how it's broken into steps, right? Like you do the background, finish that, then go to the next one, do the assessment, then but the talk writing, about the neuropathologies. Yeah. The, the writing for a case study like this, and, and I think it's different. Yeah. It's yeah. different. It's a different a little bit of a different writing style. I noticed yes. yeah. that uh, because I'm chair of the certification board, so I read some mm -hmm. of the cases coming in and it's not uncommon for clinicians to write in, I guess what I would call reportees, which is mm -hmm. that particular telegraphic writing style that you see amongst busy clinicians you know patient is 55 year old male status post left mca cva you know i mean that they're like real compact sometimes not even completely grammatical sentences mm -hmm. you know i'm having trouble right and we we don't yeah. let the students do that here yeah. you know so we don't get them to write it that way and then they go to externships and they start learning this way and they yeah. come and complain, why do you make us write like this? Whereas people are writing that way. And we said like, you gotta learn this better way first before you go to that way. You know? Well, yeah. And personally, I don't really see the point in writing in that kind of, again, semi-agrammatic telegraphic way. It doesn't take that much more time to, put in your articles and whatnot yes um, <laughs> i agree with you it's so hard to I mean, read I think, when it's like that you're right yeah, yes. yeah we're the language people yeah right yeah yeah we should yeah you yeah. should write in complete sentences yep. we should yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's what happens to me when i go to the per deep job i can't but help write in full sentences and you know, yeah. sometimes when you have this performance reviews, we have to have that too. And the feedback is like, you know, you do everything good. I'm like, I'm not working for that, but they have to give it as a routine, the performance yeah. reviews. Mm -hmm. But your documentation time, you're taking longer. I'm like, well, that's what I teach my students. I can't come here and do something that I'm teaching yeah. my students sure. not to do, you know? Yeah. I feel a little bit less guilty about writing in that kind of telegraphic writing style for a dysphagia or bedside screening <laughs> evaluation than I do in a, a language assessment, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's something kind of ironic about writing a language assessment right. that's not grammatical. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, right. Well, so you took the written test, obviously you mm -hmm. passed it. When it came time for you to decide on a case to write about, mm -hmm. how, how did you go about identifying the case that you wanted to write about? So I thought about the the clients I had seen in our clinic here. At the at the, that, that time I wasn't working for a team, I was mm. uh, here. So, and I this client stood out in my, you know, you have those clients, some clients that just stay with you. Mm -hmm. You know, we work with all clients the same way, but some people stay with you for a sure. long time, right? Yeah. So he was one of them, but he's the first one who popped in my head. Mm. His sense of humor, his, you know, he knew what he wanted in his life. He had this horrible diagnosis, multiple system atrophy, and his wife and he went uh, to the you know hospital close by in Rochester and got the diagnosis. And she would always say that was the horrible, most horrible ride of my life, you know. Yeah. And we gave them the time, and uh, he knew what was coming, but he knew what he wanted and what he didn't want. He was very clear about it. He had swallowing issues, but he said, "Nope, I'm not interested." We tried to convince him, go get a modified barium swallow study. We can work with you to help you. He eventually passed away because of that. But for speech-wise, he had mixed dysarthria, ataxic and spastic component to it. And he, his goal was, I have these grandkids, I love playing with them, and I want them to understand what I say. Mm. That was his goal. Mm -hmm. And I had very little time. And, and I thought the best, you know, we didn't have enough evidence with LSVT, with multiple systematic 
coffee. Sure. Yeah. We still don't. We only mm-hmm. have one or two, you know, case studies probably yeah. published, not high level evidence. But I said, why not? Given what his goal is, he wanted to be speaking and being understood by his little grandkids, you know, and I don't have time. So I said, let's try LSVT with him. And uh, we did, and so that's why, and he worked so hard. His sense of humor was great. He had a wonderful, wonderful supporting wife who would come to his sessions. Most of our LSVT clients have had that, but this couple stood out for me. So I wanted to write about him. That's how I chose Were you at all concerned Mm -hmm. because there wasn't much, if any, I don't think I remember reading a LSVT a paper where subjects had multiple systems atrophy. They had one or two. Yeah. Really? There are? I mean, I know there's some out there for ataxic dysarthria. Yes. That's also the similar level of evidence for ataxic Mm -hmm. and this one too. So there's one or two that I think it's one I cited in the, in the case summary I wrote up. So, so how did you, how did you address that maybe lack of really robust evidence at least direct and concrete evidence in terms of writing writing it arguing it etc yeah right so i did talk about the structure and i also talked about the need the patient had and mm-hmm. why we wanted this because it's 16 sessions and we're hoping that he showed you know we you know as you are lsvt certified right mm-hmm. so yeah. we always do a little bit of a stimulability testing that's incorporated into the protocol and they don't respond to it you don't do it so i went with that like you know when mm-hmm. the initial testing when he he showed surprising results and good results. That's when we decided to go ahead with that. I used that as the argument and I did lay it out and say, like, this is the only evidence we have so far and this is the reason why I picked. Surprisingly, the comments from the reviewers were not about why you picked this case, but more to do with, uh, you know, why didn't you try other things, which was wonderful to get that feedback from the yeah. things such as uh, using comprehensibility strategies, we're talking about using it for future, like, you know, when it deteriorates, what are, what are the supports did you give? We did discuss it with the with the patient's wife, and they did use a letter mode at the end, then when he was passing away, when he, uh, he came to the end stages of his life because of the swallowing, he passed away 10 months after we finished therapy with him. So it was pretty quick, the way yeah. his... Uh, disease process went, especially also because he refused help for, you know, swallowing. He didn't want any kind of invasive things going on with him. So, yeah, so that's the way I argued it. That's his wish. And we went with that. And I do admit in this, in the self-critic, I did talk about it. I said, like, I should have, I think back and I think I should have incorporated some of it, but you know how structured LSVT is, you know, the protocol and how much time you spend. Plus our other problem here is although we sit in and we guide the, you know, I was there throughout with the student, we are in the university clinics we have this disadvantage of doing it through the students right so that's always it takes up a lot more time than when you provide the one-on-one service but in terms Uh, of uh, teaching these uh, comprehensibility compensatory strategies if i'm understanding you right it sounded like this it might have been the case where this gentleman had clear ideas about how he wanted to communicate too and they didn't yes, include right. using an alphabet board or some other. Yes. It is, was we, that the case? Yeah. Yes, that is true. We discussed yeah. that with them in the yeah. end when we were discharging both uh, with the wife and him and said, here's an option when your speech gets worse, which likely it will given the nature of your disease. Then if this doesn't work, if you continue to practice, you know, we can't tell you how long it will stay like that because yeah. we didn't have data. Well, the only data we have is for people with idiopathic Parkinson's disease that the treatment you provide and if they continue to practice will stay for two years, right? The effects of it yeah. for LSVT. But with MSA, multiple system atrophy, we don't have much, we don't know much. So what we said, like continue to practice, it will you know, um, help you. But if it deteriorates, you use these options, like use an letter board, you know, and the wife uses strategies we talk about, like, you know, confirm what you understood, ask for clarification. We did provide that, but not as part of the therapeutic process. 
but yeah. we give it as a recommendation. We didn't practice that in therapy. So now, if you don't mind me asking, I'll share if you share. So when I did my mm -hmm. case study, I got so for listeners, there are basically three kinds of grades that you can get an outright mm -hmm. pass a pass but it needs revisions and mm -hmm. does not pass mm -hmm. and my was a pass with revisions that was what mine was i've never yeah. seen a pass an outright pass yet i'm sure they exist but you haven't yeah <laughs> no. makes me feel better <laughs> um, but what other kinds of feedback did you get or in in addition did you feel like the feedback was always reasonable because of course there are three different people and maybe three yes. different yeah. ideas of how a case should be managed and most cases yeah. can be you know particularly in terms of the details managed in different ways. Right. Yeah, I had, you know, there are three reviews, reviewers, right? Like you mm -hmm. said, sorry. So the one reviewer, I got very short to the point. Yes, no, yes, no. And, mm -hmm. you know, this could have been done just one line review. Second reviewer was moderate and talked about, you know, you could have incorporated in your assessment more of the respiratory aspects in which I kind of defended by saying because it was LSVG protocol, I accept and I would think about it in future sessions and I do. And that was good feedback, but we were going with the LSVG protocol. So that's very structured. So you do that evaluation, but he suggested, and that was a wonderful suggestion to incorporate, you know, informal respiratory measures looking at what's the breath support like. So that was great. And then the third reviewer talked a lot about the patient's main um, issue was um, speech clarity. You know, what can you, so the revision I had to do majorly was to provide supportive articles from LSVT to indicate how working on loudness improves speech intelligibility. You know, what's the evidence to show that? And that was a good point. So I made revisions to that and I found articles to support that. Yeah. Um, so, so it was wonderful getting that different types of feedback from three different people, you know, it helps you to think a little bit more. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think reviewers are pretty good about in one way or another indicating what needs to be done in the revision. Right. Yes. Right. So, yes. so doing the revision is much easier yes. than writing. Yeah the original case yeah. yeah yep in these case studies there's the final section which is the quality review where you kind of talk about in a reflective way what you might have yes. done differently etc mm -hmm. etc et mm -hmm. do you remember what you said about your yeah. case and yeah and that how, was the section how I hard how hard were yeah. you on yourself how hard were you on um, yourself I'm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I did talk about, you know, I wish I had more time to spend with him on this. I already mm -hmm. reflected on the comprehensibility strategies a little bit more. And one of the reviewers said, yes, you, you should have, you know, that's a good point. You should have reflected a lot more on that. Because yeah. I did think a lot about what I would have done differently was one of those things, like given the nature of the disease, uh, you know, how much ever I tried to say there wasn't time, I'm working with my student, I should have maybe uh, in incorporated those strategies in there and worked a little bit more on uh, helping them for the future. And somewhere I also thought, did I not educate him well enough? I did try, but did I not push him enough to go and get a following evaluation and pursue that a little bit more? Mm -hmm. You know, but I did argue and say, like, you know, he knew he clever. He was he was very, very clear about what he wanted, you know, yeah. so those were the two things that I was thinking a lot about. One of the reasons I asked you is because mm -hmm. now reading cases that other SLPs submit, and that alone is kind of interesting because, mm -hmm. you know, we don't really get much opportunity to, to put 
what other SLPs are doing under the microscope and really mm -hmm. look at them in detail and question the decisions they make. I mean, once we get our C's, we're kind of, right. you know, no one ever really pays that much attention to us again, in a way. Um, yeah. Unless you have wonderful colleagues you can talk to. That's always a nice thing, you know. Well, you yeah, do. but You're that's not always different. lucky. Yeah. That's different than than feeling, I don't know, for lack of a better way of describing it, judged. I mean not that one should feel that way with with a case study. Let me add something here that'll maybe kind of illustrate the direction I'm going in a little bit better most of the cases that I've read that haven't passed mm -hmm. in the final reflective section, people said, my patient got better. Therefore I did everything right. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, you could summarize what they said in those final <laughs> paragraphs mm -hmm. in that way with, mm -hmm. without exception, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, was really hard on myself. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought I perhaps got the diagnosis wrong, all of that. And my sense mm -hmm. is, is that some therapists and, and people I've talked to are considering going through this process are worried that, that they have to be right all the time. Mm. And of course, and so at the end saying that my patient got better and therefore I did everything right is, I don't know, for me, reading between the lines, I almost feel like the candidate believes that that's what is expected of them when I don't think I've ever had a case where I couldn't have done something better. Yeah, you, know? you always reflect back, even now, after many years, you know, you always think, what else can I do that could have been better and use that reflection. It's a lifelong process. Um, I think you're right. Most people tend to think that section is like, oh, I better say that I did everything right. If I don't say that, they're going to fail me. Maybe that's the impression that people I, get. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, you know, all but of the really good therapists I know are perpetually filled with doubt <laughs> yeah which is good right i tell the yeah. students you can never always stop you know anytime stop learning you're always reflecting every time you see a patient what else can i do next time that's better you know yeah and, yeah, yeah you're right mm -hmm. I, you know i was somehow i ran across i'm not going to take too much time here it was a quote by Yates that captured this, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to spend our time looking for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it was the the quote was something akin to those people who are really knowledgeable never really have total conviction in what they do, um, mm. whereas sometimes people who don't know as much seem to have more conviction than than is warranted mm. uh, so after the written case you have the oral defense yeah what was that like <laughs> that was the time to tell you who they are mm -hmm. who the reviewers are they reveal the names and you're like oh my goodness right yeah you pull and back you're like, the curtain oh, <laughs> yes, and these are the experts in the field. They know about them, and I have to defend. And yeah. it makes sense totally with the feedback they gave you. And so mm -hmm. you prepare, and uh, you go in, and and you you worry about yourself. Obviously, the day before, it's nerve wracking. But once you get in there, they make you feel so comfortable. It's it's it was a wonderful experience. Kathleen was there, mm -hmm. and she was there throughout, like helping me out, like you probably are with everybody else right now. You know, mm -hmm. um, giving them. You know, I had a lot of questions she would answer, and she was there mediating it. Out of the three, I think one person couldn't make it to the meeting. There were two of the reviewers who were there, and Kathleen was sitting in for the other person. And they asked, and then the questions that they had during the, you know, when they gave me feedback. 
those were the similar questions they had. First, I present, you know, my case. I have a PowerPoint and I presented my whole case to them. And then they asked questions and uh, they gave you that feedback. And they were similar sort of questions with that. And we talked about it and uh, they see how I respond to the question. And then they make you go out, right, for couple of minutes when they discuss that's the most torturous time that of your is. life yeah, <laughs> you remember yeah. yeah and then you wait and uh, i think about five ten minutes later they came and told me i passed so yeah. and then they announced that i think in the meeting which starts right right in the beginning that we have a new candidate who went through the process and they make you stand up and that seems worth it like by the end of it you feel like wow yeah <laughs> my whole department was congratulating me once they knew so yeah it was fun yeah. it was nice and i remember standing up too and it is something to be proud of yeah um, yeah and we worked hard and uh, you know, yeah we, we don't have a lot of ways in which to demonstrate all the work that we put into developing our knowledge and skills and mm -hmm. you know board certification i think is one more or less concrete way of of doing that yeah yeah, yeah. so when i told my department people the process they said well it's almost like a defense like an oral defense for a dissertation right i did yeah. do my when i did my master's i did do a thesis you know mm -hmm. with the faculty members so it's the that prepared me a little little bit it's very similar you have to defend it and you have to present your but it's a similar process and i like it i mean it is very structured but it is not you know uh, like intimidating finally when you do it when you're going through the process uh, in different stages you might feel like oh my gosh can i do this you know but eventually when you get in start doing it it's not that bad it's actually uh good because like you said when do you get that feedback from an expert in the field who tells you, oh, you're doing this right, but here's something else you could do and makes you think about it. And you carry that feedback with you, you know, with your future clients. And right. eventually you get that recognition with the certification. Yeah. It's awesome. And, yeah. and being told that maybe there's something that you could have paid attention to that you didn't or that there's something that you could have done a different way. It's not really a dig. I mean, again, yes. it's, it's just you know, opening up your thought process and making you think more. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, as working therapists and oftentimes, you know, we have to be kind of generalist. We don't have the luxury that some academics do where they can devote their time to a narrow area of study, mm -hmm. right? I have to be the aphasia guy, the motor speech guy, and the dysphagia guy, and the head and neck cancer guy, too. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what is your, you know, if you were to pick a population that you're really most interested in, in working with now, is there one that you really are focused Apart more on? Clinically? Apart from what I'm doing, or I would like to, or what I'm doing currently. Well, you're talking about let's say uh, what you would like to. I mean, what what group really captures your interest the most? I mean, I don't want to suggest that you know everybody yeah. else is being ignored necessarily. <laughs> right, right. But you know, well, I mean. majority of my caseload right now is mm. people with aphasia and apraxia. Okay. You uh -huh. know, so that's my major load, major majority of the clients. I run three groups: aphasia groups. Uh, we have uh, Wednesday group, Thursday group, Friday group. For they meet for ninety minutes, and each group has between uh, three to five uh, people in each group. Five to six is the max I limit. So it started out as when I took over the groups, uh, five people in one group, and it's low expanded and so we keep getting referrals for that it's fun and students love being in the group so I run the groups and I work individually with most of the people in the groups as well and we also get referrals from outside and once they you know reach the potential they continue with the group and they like to keep coming to the groups most of the clients so that's my major population that I work with in the clinic I do get a lot of clients with motor speech disorders too mm -hmm. um, 
dysarthrias. I love working with dysarthria population. Um, and um, I work with voice clients, but I, like I said, the population I'm more drawn towards people with aphasia. Hmm. And do you have a particular approach that you really focus mm -hmm. on when you're working with, let's say, people with aphasia? And both in the individual and in the group, I, we incorporate both. I do both the impairment based and the LPA approach, life mm -hmm. participation approach to aphasia. Um, so both both the approaches, I do a combination of both. Mm -hmm. That seems to be kind of the the standard these days, I think, for mm -hmm. right. good solid treatment. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, as long as, you know, we've kind of been talking about how no one's perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what areas of your of your clinical practice, let's stick with working with people with aphasia, are you still kind of actively working on trying to get better at developing? Like for me, it's mm -hmm. goal setting. Like mm -hmm. that's an area I still need. I, I, I know what I need to do there. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when you say goal setting, goal setting for clients or for yourself? Or? No, no, for my for my clients and, you know, doing mm -hmm. client centered goal setting. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, probably another area that I seem to perpetually struggle with is good data collection yeah i agree with yeah. you for me the main one i find and i dig all the time for it is um data collection not necessarily data but the outcomes that how i can document the changes in syntax for people with aphasia i mm -hmm. dig in and i don't find much except cius with nicholas and brookshire but that's yeah. not looking at syntax completely it's more the content of it mm -hmm. and then i looked at saffron you know and cindy thompson's study so they are linguists both of them are linguists right mm -hmm. luckily we have a faculty member here who Dr. can Riley, Ellen Riley. she <laughs> she worked with Cindy. So okay. she worked with Cindy's lab, Cindy Thompson's mm -hmm. lab at Northwestern. She got her PhD with her. So mm -hmm. she helps me sometimes, you know, to do that. But they're so lengthy and we have the time to do it here, teach the students. She teaches them in her class. So we try to do some of that. And, you know, we try to do salt that we use with kids. We try to code it using that, you know, um, and analysis for language transcripts, you know, for kids. And we use that software sometimes, but I'm always looking for something that we can do quickly and document the changes, you know, I work a lot on syntax and I tell the students, don't stop. You know, most people work on semantics and don't go any further, yeah. but here's what you can do. But how do we document the changes and the outcomes with syntax, you know, apart from what we do weekly with the percentage changes, and, you know, and I, Eventual outcomes, of course, we look at their output. We always sure. do the standardized Cinderella story or we do the cookie fact pre-post. That's yeah. fine, but I'm looking to see, you know, did they improve in percentage-wise how many verbs they're using, you know, and all of that grammatical structures. So I find that linguists do a better job of that and then to learn that and then do it, it's kind of time-consuming but interesting. Yeah, Um Definitely time consuming. I'm not sure I'm on board with you as far as the interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> My students would agree. <laughs> right. The other thing that I struggle with the most, I think, with our population with aphasia is the generalization piece to conversation, you know? Mm. So every study you see would say, like, you know, generalization does not occur, you have to target it separately. Right. So I try to include that in conversation as part of it. And that's when the LPA piece comes in. So I try to use the supported conversation. I love doing a lot of that conversational coaching with the partners, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a script training. So the LPA approach is using these. So that's what I use to help with that piece when the generalization doesn't happen automatically you know well you work a lot on the SFA you work a lot on Venus you work on all of the impairment based uh, therapies 
uh, it doesn't automatically happen quickly, you know, so, and they would say in the studies too, one of the, you know, things is generalization doesn't for untrained items, obviously. So you got to work on it. It doesn't yeah. always happen with all techniques. Yeah. So I find that a little bit of a challenge and that's what I use the, so the LPA approach to get around that. Yeah, I I mean, I'm totally in agreement there in terms of how difficult it is both to get generalization to conversation and also to document it, to measure it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I'm talking about generalization to conversation. Yeah. Right. More than, you know, untrained items. I'm talking about generalization in conversation. you got to work on it separately, right? With the word retrieval. Yeah. yeah. You know, something I've been thinking about lately, and this is related to generalization, is that I've been asking my clients who have aphasia just and who, you know, their primary concern is word finding. They want to work mm-hmm. on word finding. And so that's the impairment part of their treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Been asking them, you know, I, I think a pretty straightforward, simple question, and that is, how many words do you think you would need to regain good access to in order to notice a meaningful difference in your conversation ability? Because, you know, we look at our naming treatment studies and they're, you know, oftentimes people are working on sets of 20, 25 words. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, unless you've chosen 20, 25 words that are really important and really used commonly, who knows right. when yeah. or how often a person would ever even get the chance to use those words and whether or not there mm-hmm. would be enough uh, productions to kind of keep them active in a way so i asked them well how many words would you do you think you would need to to get better at and and uh i asked three of my clients and the crazy Mm -hmm. thing is is all three said 500 Mm -hmm. words exactly 500 (laughs) words everyone said 500 words yeah and you know that was interesting Mm -hmm. because now you know that sets up a problem for me as the clinician which is wow okay so how how could we work on 500 words i don't know of i don't believe there is any research out there that's done anything like looking at that number of words being trained Mm -hmm. i remembered uh, four or five years ago i think there was a systematic review or a meta-analysis that asked the question something like can we train people on too many words at once and as i remember it their conclusion was that in the research studies people tend to be working on much smaller sets of words than they could in, mm-hmm. in the few studies where people were maybe working on 50 words at a time, mm-hmm. there wasn't any negative influence on learning per se by having to chew on a larger group of words. Clearly, you know, there seems to be an issue there of efficiency because if you're going to do SFA, semantic feature analysis, it could take you a while to get through 50 words. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. I can hardly like a one hour session. Yeah. <laughs> I still have to do like you know, five, that's more than you know they could do when you well, have to target other objectives as well, you know. Yeah, and I think so. that that has something to do with generalization. I mean, if you're only if your clients only practicing 20 words or five words in your session, I don't know. I Unless, again, those are really well identified, very important words. 
words. Yeah, we you always know, choose those. The yeah. meaningfulness yeah. of that activity is a bit lost on me. Mm. <laughs> but right, and right. and that's. Well, you can't get of... to like 500 or 30 in a session. That's the problem. Like, no, you with the limitations we have, you know, no, you the can't. time limitations within an hour session. But, you know, I, 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 I had my clients, um, we tried some kind of an experiment. And this is like something that I'm just currently obsessed with. And it's a recent obsession of mine mm-hmm. in a kind of an errorless practice. Where a person just mm-hmm. saw a word on the printed page, read it out, and mm-hmm. maybe put it, composed it into a sentence. So you got some, I think, kind of contextual semantics going on. Um, for one of my clients, if she just repeated the word, she could do 250 words in 40 minutes of practice. My apraxic client mm-hmm. was more around 150 words. Mm-hmm. If they put it into a sentence, my um, this is a client with PPA, still pretty mild. Uh, you know, she mm-hmm. could get through 150 words mm-hmm. put into a sentence in a 40-minute session. Mm-hmm. And my client with moderate, non-fluent moderate apraxia could do um, 60, 75 or more hundred words in that time frame. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my clients, some of them, or most of them I know, uh, would say like, you know, I want as many as I could say before I had my stroke, you know, sure, of course, I want that. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the ultimate goal. So and I'm one and i had a very good vocabulary and i could get the words right away what i want to say now it's harder you know i had um command over the language and i don't have that and i want all of that back now yeah yeah um i don't want to use any strategies i don't want to describe it and i want the word to come like that right mm, yeah yeah uh Anything as far as your practice that that's been really important for you in terms of of changing your practice? I mean, I think most of us go through phases, right, where we yeah kind of right do something right. for a while in a certain way, and then for one reason or another, we realize we need to make some changes, and we go through a kind mm-hmm. of a new growth period and. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. For me, that seems to happen about every five years. Mm-hmm. Do right. you experience something like that? I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, depending on which area you're talking about. So it yeah. happens with all yeah. different areas, that all the areas that I'm right. working with, right? Uh, yeah. With aphasia, like you're talking about, I, I, I think after working for a while, I, I feel like we need to have something that I think... Um, only Julie Wamba is doing that. And I talked to you about that, mm. like, you know, combined aphasia and apraxia treatment program. I think there's a huge need for that. And she is doing an awesome job collecting data for that. And I think right. clinically that is so relevant because of all the time pressures, the productivity mm-hmm. pressures everyone has. If you can get some more data that she's working on, we'll get some wonderful stuff. With that she's fine-tuning it and she's getting more and i wish we would you know get more on that and try to get that would be so neat because most of our mm-hmm. population of this combined aphasia apraxia together and targeting both at the same time would well we save have so to much be time. efficient not just yeah. effective and because, get results soon yeah when I you, mean, you can both. you can be effective but not come out with a meaningful outcome right (laughs) right you probably need to be both effective and efficient to come out with yeah so that's what she's doing to get data from there Mm. and yeah we replicated it in our clinic too did a single subject design with the original study that she had 
and uh, yeah, we found similar results with the apraxia piece. She's fine tuning that. I think the initial data was more uh, for the CIUs that got better with the speech production part. Mm -hmm. She's still working on that and looking forward to that. I think that's something that I'm kind of interested in and looking forward to to see what happens with that. I think that would be great for physical clinicians to have when you have two treatments in one objective that you can hit and get through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you in, you, you mentioned the being involved in some research. Do you do that off and on? Uh, um, like I do single subject designs here in the mm -hmm. clinic. We present that as posters at ASHA. Right. We've been involved with that. Most of our clinical supervisors and clinical mm -hmm. instructors have done that with the faculty members and on our own too sometimes. And I do collaborate with some studies with, with the, the faculty members with the Dr. Riley, who's a Asia person. I haven't done anything yet. Um, we we want to. We want, she she does some TCDS uh, in her in her lab. She's oh, yeah. beginning to. So I'm and she works with Fredrickson, you know, to mm -hmm. uh, Julius mm -hmm. Fredrickson, yeah, to collect some data. She just began that, I think, and um, um, I like that. That's another area of interest to me that I like to see what comes yeah. out of that. Yeah, I'm hoping, yeah, it would be great but, to have. Yeah, haven't, we haven't done anything yet to, to, to offer. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and I've collaborated with the voice faculty member. We have Dr. Lowell here, Soren Lowell. And so I collaborated with her with a couple of studies. So, yeah. So on and off, we do some stuff together, but nothing concrete or big yet. It's in the pipeline. We're trying to work on it. So we'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. I would love to at some point get involved in that completely. They do encourage it here in our department, which is nice. I'm not sorry, just they clinical stuff. They do encourage it in our department to have that kind of interest, research mm. interest for the clinical faculty. They encourage us to collaborate with the academic faculty. So that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, it sounds like you're really busy. Uh, yeah. Both with yeah. teaching and seeing clients. Uh, yes, it's always take on busy teaching, too. seeing clients, administrative work, research. We do it all here. So. And that's the fun part, you know, doing it all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great having you on uh, the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, chat with me and, and uh, the audience, I guess. Yeah. Um, Thank you for having me. This was fun. It was wonderful. Yeah. yeah great. Thanks again. All right. Take care, Mike. Bye. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ANCDS podcast. To learn more about the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, you can go to ancds.org. You can also find our podcasts there, or you can find the podcasts on iTunes and SoundCloud.